Hello and welcome once again from the wall, behind and beyond. My name is Philip. I'm your host. Today we have a guest who is not only a personal friend, but a literal renaissance woman who wears many hats. Name a few. She's a professor, scholar of film, black visual and popular culture, screenwriter, content developer, co-founder of Daughter of Eve Media Inc., a speaker, moderator, public intellectual, film, film festival curator. But I'll let her introduce herself to the listeners by telling us her name and anything else about herself that we all should know. So welcome to the show, my friend. It is so good to have you tonight. Oh, it's so good to be here, Philip. We made it. It's been a long journey trying to get us in conversation, but I'm so glad it, it's happening now. Absolutely. Can you please tell the listeners your name and anything that you would like them to know that I did not or may have not mentioned? Sure. Um, my name is Michelle Prettyman, and I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, went to public school in Baltimore City, um, graduated high school, went to college at the University of Maryland, and really from there, my life was fundamentally about exploring Black culture, Black film, and um, trying to find ways to use film, filmmaking, and storytelling to enhance our own sort of internal sense of selves and, and really as a creative outlet. Um, so that's fundamentally, I guess, the basics, Philip, of, of a little bit about who I am. I, I had to mention that I was raised in the same place that you were raised. And um, much of my family is from there and, and still lives there. So that's a that's a big part of, of our stories that we, we both have in common. Oh, thank you so much for that. And you know what? You know, you are a living testament to the fact that you can come from the mean streets of Baltimore. We all know that it is probably one of the most uh, underserved and dangerous cities in the country. Um, and we're not proud of that, but it's the life that we was given when we was born into it. So we, um, some of us overcome it. And you show that you can go educate yourself, work hard, and even though you had those things that, you know, a lot of people were not able to overcome, you were able to do so in spite of that. And so you are a role model in a lot of ways to the young people that come up in Baltimore City these days. And so I wanted to make mention of that and let you know I'm proud of you coming out of the town, you know? Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to add one more thing here, Philip, because I think this connection to us having this shared origin story is powerful. Um, I, I want to say that, you know, I saw a lot growing up in Baltimore, but I think one major difference for me in my nuclear family was that I had parents who were, you know, relatively young when they had me, but there, there was something in the construction of my own family that gave me something that so many other people did not have. So I'm not, I'm not special. I'm not, you know, I, I, I was, I was blessed with things that I had no control over and no say about. And uh, many people that I know of, people in my own family did not, in my own extended family, did not really have that, Philip. So I think it's important to say that um, there are things from birth from birth that some people do not have. And that unfortunately in this country charts a course for them. And I, I just think it's important to say that, that I, I, I'm not special, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no better, no worse than anyone else, but I did have a foundation and a foundation that was built on sort of love and care and, and which protected me from a lot of the things that so many people um, experience growing up. And I think that just, you know, that just sets our lives on this course that we, we just have so little control over. So it's very important for me to say that. Um, but thank you for your kind words. Thank you. Oh, 
Absolutely, and I'm gonna add on to that again because I think that what you're describing would not be justified or given the proper uh, attention to those who may not know the three different sides or three different elements of being raised in a city like Baltimore. So I'll just give mine, and that way other people can know exactly what you're speaking of. Um, I came up in the inner city, uh, Westport, uh, West Baltimore, and uh, my, my mother, she had me when she was young, a teenager. She was a drug addict. Uh, my father, he was older than my mother, but he was also a drug addict and an alcoholic. And both of my parents, um, although they were good people, uh, they were unable uh, to provide the things uh, that me and my brothers needed to keep us on track, such as that foundation that you speak of. And uh, they both died very young as a result of their um, addictions to uh, substance. So what you said is the key determining factor on whether or not a kid can survive. You can survive anywhere if you've got the proper uh, 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 infrastructure uh, and love and support and, and, and encouragement and protection. You know what I'm saying? So thank you so much for pointing out that you had all that because there's a lot of us and young people in our, that come from our background that didn't have that. So I think that was necessary to let the uh, listeners know there's two different sides. And you can, you can, even in a city like Baltimore, if you have supportive parents that's taking care of their children and doing all the things necessary to keep them protected from, from those societal ailments, then they'll be just fine, even in Baltimore. So if you, do you want to say anything else to that before I go to the first question? Yes, I know. Listen, and I know you work so hard preparing your questions and you're so detail oriented, but I think this just gives your audience a little more context. I'm going to add one last thing. Um, Philip, when I graduated uh, college, um, I had I earned two degrees in African-American studies and in radio, television and film. And I started uh, doing an internship. Um, I was working actually for National Geographic, making documentary films. Um, and I, I was about to be promoted on that job. And something in my spirit just gave me pause and, and told me to essentially come back to Baltimore City um, to teach in the public school system, which I did for several years. Um, and the reason that I did that when I, you know, was essentially about to embark on this, you know, this this career path in filmmaking was because not only had I had a loving and supportive family, but as I mentioned, I went to public schools. Um, I had extraordinary teachers, um, largely black teachers uh, who cared about my well-being, who gave everything that they had and poured that into me. And I, I had to, to pause and go back to the city. And this is, this is the early nineties, Philip. So it was really, it was getting interesting out there. And I saw young people and I taught elementary school, I taught early elementary school. So we're talking first, second and third grade. And there were little children who could come into class and explain to me the different grades of crack cocaine. And I thought, okay, you know, this is, I have to, I have to spend some time here. I have to, um, I, I just felt compelled to be in that place. I saw so much in the lives of those children, but it was just, um, I knew that I had been given a lot. I knew I had been given a lot and that there were children in that city that needed so much. And it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. So I'm just bringing that full circle, um, you know, to just to, to show you how important all of this is to me. Um, so, yeah. Powerful. To whom much is given, <laughs> much is expected. And that's a powerful statement that you made. This amazing sister was at Nat G doing documentary, documentary films. And she chose to come back to her city and to teach in public schools. And so these are the type of heroes and sheroes that we need from our community to make sure that our young people know that even though I'm successful and I made it, I'm not gonna turn my back on you and I will come back and assist so that you can get out as well. So each one reach one, you know what I'm saying? That's a powerful statement, um, sister, I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, 
So the first question, you know, is going to take us back, and this is a powerful discussion, and we don't, we ain't going to keep it mechanical, you know. If we want to detour into some deep discussions for the people, we can do that. So don't feel trapped by the questions. Never. I always tell everybody that. Um, as a, you know, as a scholar of film, what are your thoughts about uh, documenting and highlighting the perils of mass incarceration? Um, as one of the societal ailments uh, that we see taking shape in uh, inner cities uh, where African-Americans are largely populated? Well, um, you know, I started off early in childhood being deeply affected by documentary films. And interestingly enough, the, the most, one of the most interesting things to me, even as a child, were films about prison life. And, you know, I, I used to think about like, what, what was, what was going on in your head that made this such an interesting subject for you? But I think it was the place where some of the most, not, I, I don't think I thought of it early on as a place like that was about injustice. I just thought of it as a place of like horrors, like it, where we treated people even people who had done bad things so inhumanely. And so documentary filmmaking became a vehicle to speak back to that, to highlight, um, again, injustices, um, to highlight the, the frailties and the, the, the just, the brokenness in the system and uh, this is, you know, this is the 1980s and 90s. And then you you fast forward now to certainly Ava DuVernay's 13th, to Slavery by Another Name, to um, Stanley Nelson. He's got a number of important films about Black life, but, you know, he did this documentary on crack cocaine and, and the epidemic there, and a, a new film in last year called Attica, where he documents the uprising there. So those films have been so powerful for me and for countless other viewers, um, giving us insight into a world that, you know, sometimes, you know, we watch the Shawshank Redemption or something like that. And we think we understand prison life when there is so much more to it. So I, I just think that it's documentary filmmaking is maybe the most powerful tool we have um, to documenting what's really going on and, and how we might rethink it or dare I say, fix it, or maybe even abolish it, who knows, but to open up that conversation. Listen, I have struggled with this, I'm there. I'm at the point now where abolishing is where I believe that we need to be because we can't fix a broken system. Um, my organization, uh, Inside Outside Consults, one of the main things that we're doing as a nonprofit is reimagining what prisons look like in America. Because as a, a 21st century advanced uh, civilization um, and most powerful country uh, on the on the planet, uh, it's strange to me that everybody else has figured it out and yet we still are treating people like they're herded as cattle or, is they, or they don't have any um, you know, rights to be respected or that there's no compassion or mental health considerations, you know, and all of these things make broken people. Trauma makes it impossible for individuals to come out and thrive mm. or to succeed if it's not dealt with properly. But if the prison is, is adding to it or creating it, uh, what type of system can that be? Because uh, you can't create healthy people that way. And so what is the point of prison? Mm -hmm. um, I know um, a lot of people argue, well, what, what are you going to do? You're going to just let people free? And what are you going to do? Is nobody going to be held accountable? No, that's not what we're saying. If you take a mental health approach, if you, if you deal with the person's trauma, if you treat the person through therapy, if you um, educate the people um, and, and, and show some compassion, I promise you that they won't keep coming back. But, you know, that's for another show. You know what I'm saying? You uh, have 60 seconds remaining. I went on a tangent because it's, it's personal to me. I'll be right back. That's the lady coming with the 60-second uh, warning. 
Um, and so we'll pick up on the other side. All right, welcome back. Um, you know, I wanted I wanted to ask Michelle, you know, to reply or to give some feedback on that. Or if not, you know, we can go to the next question. But I'm quite sure that she would like to speak on some of the stuff that I mentioned. So go right ahead, sister. Yes, thank you, Philip. Um, when you talk about abolishing this system, you know, as you said, a lot of people have really strong reactions to it. Um, but what I, you know, I started a few years ago doing some research on, you know, sort of abolition. And I, what I discovered was that, of course, it's not a new concept, but that there have been people for decades who have been carefully thinking about this notion of abolishing uh, the prison industrial complex for decades. And whether it's, uh, you know, Ruth uh, Gilmore Wilson, Wilson Gilmore, what is it? Uh, let me get her right. Yeah, Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, and countless other people who have been writing about this and thinking about this. So this is not a new idea. It's new to many of us, but it's not new. And it has uh, scholarship behind it. And it has uh, a clear mandate of what the abolishment, as you just described, what its benefits are, right? So this is not a, a, a new sort of random knee-jerk response, but it is a, a, a thoughtfully uh, executed uh, concept. And I think people should understand that and that there is so much scholarship behind it and research behind it. So I would encourage people to look into that. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in that, but I would point them in the direction of some of the scholarship that explains exactly how this could work. This is not this is not a, a knee-jerk reaction. Okay. Um, and I agree with you 100 percent I know there's a lot of people who are educated about this subject and trying to create policies. And I have some ideas about how these people can sit at the table together and hash it out or get the get the information to those who make the laws and change um, policies throughout the different states and federal systems. But what I want to know from you is, what comes to your mind when you think about mass incarceration or the criminal justice system or the prison industrial complex um, as it relates to the bias that we see towards African-American people um, in this country? Wow, that's a big question. Um... You know, a moment ago, Philip, you described how other countries in the world have approached this differently and how they get different results out of their systems. And while I don't, I don't know of a system, you know, I, I, again, I've not studied every system in the world, but I don't know that they are all perfect. But I think what separates our system from many of theirs is that our system fundamentally has always been based around racial injustice, always, from the very beginning, right? The criminal justice system was always about policing people of color, always. And that is a significant difference, right? So our history is very different. Um, but when I think about the system broadly, again, I'll go back to something you already said, that the idea of our system is not just punitive, right? It's not just seeking to punish, and it's not just seeking to punish particular people with the kind of ferocity and the kind of depravity that we see in our system, but it also fundamentally lacks an awareness of what helps people and what benefits people, to your point, right? That we think we can break people and subject people to inhumane treatment and that somehow those people will will get out maybe in some cases they hope folks never get out but ultimately most people will get out and the idea that we don't invest in those people it, it's just it, it doesn't even make logical sense so even if politically you find yourself on some other side of the, just logically it doesn't make sense so i guess those are some of the thoughts that come to mind that the system has been uh, developed to work a certain way, and that way is contrary to our own social evolution. It just doesn't fit with who we say we want to be as human beings. So I guess that's where I would, what I would say about that. That's powerful, sister. Um, like Michelle Alexander often speaks in her book 
uh, the new Jim Crow is that prisons are have become for profit and they are making um, so much uh, economies and the local local economies are being so uh, replenished uh, by prisons that they can't foresee uh, changing the structure of it because it's all set up uh, for them to be profitable. Um, and um, I was going to lead that up to this. As the most uh, industrialized country in the world, supposed to be first, the leader of the world, we won't take no examples from other countries who have figured it out and have been successful, such as Norway, Germany, Canada to some extent. When I say Canada, I'm not necessarily just speaking about the prison system. I'm talking about the fact that, you know, you are entitled to a free education and free health care. And we look at that like a social program, not to deviate, but most of the things that we get in our country are part of a social program that was set up, you know, even social security. So why don't we make excuses? If we want to save money and be fiscally responsible in our country and then save human life, then we need to take examples from those who have been successful. And so that's why I'm promoting also that we start looking at the Norwegian model and asking some of these guys to come over here and talk to us about their experience. That's another show. I don't, I ain't even gonna, you know, I don't want to take that up for what we're talking about, but what we're talking about here is something deep and I didn't want to, you know, go off the subject necessarily because it needs to be heard. And I'm sure the listeners are really uh, enjoying it. And so, Let's keep it um, around here. Um, I know I got these questions, but um, the next thing, if you don't, you want to comment before I go on? No, it's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I don't want to speak past something I know because I'll be having thoughts all the time. So <laughs> I you'll always do that to double back to see what you're thinking. Um, you know, from reading your bio, I see that you immersed yourself in moving image and critical race visual culture studies. Um, the word critical race jumps out to me because of the current discussion about critical race theory, CRT. Uh, it's something that people from the political divide who happen to be far right most of the time want nothing to do with. And so I got a lot of uh, opinions about this, but I want to um, allow my guest, um, Michelle, to you know talk about her thoughts as it relates to uh, what's going on in our country when it comes to stuff like critical race theory, CRT. Wow, yeah, oh boy. Okay, so um, I guess first, um, you know, I'm not sure what your audience knows about it, um, but I think it's important maybe just to back up and, and explain its origins as a term. Um, the term emerged at the intersection of legal studies and black studies um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, particularly in the work of, of the late great Derek Bell and certainly Kimberly Crenshaw and other really brilliant legal minds. And then it, it evolved um, in the sense that um, it started to trickle out into black studies and communication and media studies and philosophy and things like that. And what scholars, what the legal scholars were really trying to get us to understand was that our criminal justice system was fundamentally based on being able to recognize race as a kind of optic, as something that you could see. And if you can see it, then you can assign a set of characteristics to those people who bore the mark of race. And so if you go back to like Homer versus Plessy, part of what gets decided in that case is his race, his racial identity. And they, they sort of build this case that historically race as a, as a visual fact in quotes, as an optical thing that you can see becomes this defining way to adjudicate citizenship and value and personhood. And then media studies sort of picks up on that and film studies picks up on that. And we start to, in my own discipline, think about the ways in which blackness functions and the ways in which it's commodified and the ways in which it's disseminated and the ways in which it limits how people can move and be and function 
So that's kind of the origin in a, in a few sentence, sentences of critical race theory. So people who are using that term have no context for the term, but they are using it as a kind of coded language to hide behind their own fears around uh, black studies and really the history of this country as well. Um, so I, I guess I would encourage people not to attach value to the term as it is being circulated, but to first understand the origins of the term. But I guess secondly, um, oh, do you want to add something, Philip? Um, no, just to continue, I'm going to uh, comment on a few things because I think it's important, um, but I wanted you to finish your thoughts because this is powerful. What you're saying, you're defining it and telling them where it came from and everything. And that's something that I think they need to hear in case they didn't even know about it. Okay, sure. So I the, the second piece, so that, you know, what I just described is, you know, I, I discovered the term when I'm in graduate school. Again, most people in the world never heard the term because it's, it's, it's a very specific term that has a specific academic context. Um, but what I am concerned about is the implications of some of this legislation, particularly on children, in K through 12 schools around the country and states that are adopting these, these, these awful uh, pieces of legislation. I am concerned about those children, um, but I will say this, here's, here's I think a, a sad irony. Our schools were already in many cases so deficient in their teaching of this country's history um, and, and in the ways that that history was framed largely as a sort of white construct. So that was already so problematic, but now we have these really draconian laws that are trying to even restrict that further. So I, I guess I would just say that, you know, we have to be a lot more savvy about how we teach this history to our children and in our communities and our families and our homes. We have to just be much more savvy to make sure that our children are learning and, and being exposed to ideas that are truthful, that are vetted, that, um, that are grounded in, 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 the, in the truth of our, our experiences in this country. So I, I am concerned about young people who are gonna be impacted by this, I guess was my point there. There is no strategic um, on the part of a lot of these lawmakers that don't wanna see CRT uh, be taught in the public schools. It's strategic in the sense that um, they understand that they have been giving up anything but the truth about history for black people in America and beyond. And so when I hear you speaking, I kept thinking about when I was in school. They made it so that the textbooks only had three or four pages about, you know, uh, black people's history in America. So they would have... Frederick Douglass, um, Harriet Tubman, um, Booker T. Washington, and, you know what I mean, which were, they were great human beings, but it didn't define us because nobody knew our history before we got to this, these shores. And so it wasn't until I went to college and then I took African American studies and African studies that I started seeing pride in who I was and understanding that we come from a glorious past, um, and so that, um, that's what made me dare to believe um, that I was somebody and that I'm, I'm who I am today. And so these lawmakers don't want CRT because they're trying to shield their children from knowing the facts and the truth about history for the black people in America that they are supposed to be fellow uh, 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 um, citizens with. And so I don't want to get sidetracked, but I know what you're saying is absolutely right. And they have a reason for not wanting it to be taught, even though they themselves don't understand it. They just believe that if their children are taught the truth, that it would change um, somehow in America the palace of power. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I and I'll just reiterate that. Unfortunately, I, you know, I think it puts more pressure again on parents of young children um, to. But but you know what I'm I want to just say this quickly, you know my family did not have a lot of money, 
we did not have a lot of, of much of anything. We, I mean, we had a, a decent living. We had all our needs were met, right? But what I mean is, um, I think we have gotten away from some fundamental principles of what education is anyway. So as, as awful as this is, as backwards and, you know, just politically dangerous as this is, I always have to remind people that wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, and Philip, you are a testament to this, wherever you find yourself, there is an opening for you to learn, to discover um, that, that these laws, these lawmakers, these policymakers, even the teachers in your child's school do not determine that child's future. And so wherever you find yourself, it's going to be incumbent upon you to really seek some truth and expose your children to literature. We went to the library. I mean, we didn't even, we had a lot of books in our house, but the library was really the place where we went to discover. And so I, I think we have to be, again, more savvy as parents and, and as older people as well, to not sort of drink the information that's, that, that, that's, that seems to be legitimate, like the trolling the internet, just the constant sort of consumption of, of what's out there. I think there is an opening to really stop some of that and stop some of the flow of information and get back to some things that really do make sense. So I, I'm, I'm just thinking about what, I mean, I have children now, my last child is about to graduate college. And so I remember, you know, trying to be, intentional about what they were exposed to and giving them alternative pathways to see themselves as young black people. Um, and I, I just think we're going to have to drill down on that in, in this era. And, and yeah, I'll stop there, Philip. Well, if they want to let the schools to teach so that all people learn the truth about history and what has been done to a people to try to crush and diminish their abilities to thrive, then we must teach our own children so that they're smart enough to articulate it to the world as they go outside their homes every day. Absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, so, you spoke about something that I think is um, germane to all of this conversation, because it's the root of it all. You spoke about how spiritual and cultural practices can facilitate healing from personal and racial trauma, uh, build community, and enable creativity and well-being. Um, so I would like to hone in on that because all the collective trauma that we as people have suffered and continue to face in this country, uh, from my perspective of being incarcerated, I noticed that there are a lot of individuals that suffer behind these walls from a lot of mental health diagnoses um, due to uh, traumas that have never been visited. And so I was just curious about um, that part of your, you know, your knowledge, um, spiritually, culturally practices of healing and things such as that nature. Yeah, you know, I've been, I've been wanting to share um, just my own journey around these kinds of things. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a, a manuscript about this, Philip, and it's still in the very early stages. But what I, what I would say is that first, incarcerated people, as I have learned, right, I have had to learn about the experiences of incarcerated people. I don't, that's not something that I know. With that thought, sister, I'll be right back on the other side. We'll take a break right here. I love this discussion. I'll be back. Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say, go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-O-L-E-T-O-P-H-I-L-L-I-P.com. And scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees. As I'm in need of a criminal attorney, um, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support. And thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it. And um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference and I'll be home soon. I'm back um, with Dr. Prettyman. Michelle, please uh, finish what you were saying. Um, and we'll get back into it. Yes, thank you. Um, 
we were just talking about the trauma of incarcerated people. Um, and I was just sharing with you how, you know, whether it's through watching documentary films, talking with folks, reading, um, I've learned about some of what that experience is like. Of course, I can never know having not been there, but I've learned a little bit about it. But I think your bigger question was, how do we as human beings heal? How do we navigate uh, trauma? And I do believe that human beings are fundamentally all experiencing degrees of trauma. Um, I guess what I would say to that, Philip, is that for me, the most important discovery that I've made in my life is that we are first spiritual beings. And to internalize and to even question, well, what does that mean? If I draw a distinction between myself as a spiritual being and as a human being, what would that look like? What would that mean? What's, what is it about the human that for me is just incomplete? It's incomplete of me to see myself solely as human. And I think part of the trauma that we experience is that we don't know ourselves as spiritual beings, that we don't spend enough time asking a question exploring that question, what would it mean if I was a spiritual being? Does that mean that I am made in the image and likeness of God? Yes, that's a real possibility. Does it mean that within me lives all the potential, all of the, all of the healing, all of the awareness that I need? I think so. But I think the first step for me is just the recognition that we are spiritual beings first. We're not human beings first, right? Deepak Chopra says it in a way that I think is easy for us to remember that we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And the human experience is filled with trauma and not knowing how to grieve and not knowing um, how to love and not knowing how to love ourselves, right? So the human part of us is fundamentally flawed. Some people say sinful. I don't, I don't use that framework, but I think it's flawed. And it's been flawed in ways that we really don't even have time to go through today. But I would encourage people to, to really not be afraid to ask those questions, to not be afraid to ask whatever it is that you believe in, whatever it is, whatever form of God, consciousness, life, spirit, energy that you believe in, that you feel, to ask that thing how you might navigate your life, to ask for help. There have been times in my life, Philip, where I literally just said, help, I don't know what to do. I've done everything I can do. And I, I suspect that you may know a little bit about that, Philip. So just the asking of what I think is something that lives in us, through us, as us, around us, how, how can I be better? How can I be whole? How can I discover a sense of purpose? The opening of that and that's, that's a journey that's going to look many different ways. You have your journey, Philip. I have mine. But I think paying more attention to that question and that journey is part of what's really important to me. And, and through that, and I know it sounds sort of abstract, um, but just being, being one with that journey, I think, is... A, at least a step toward a kind of healing. And then of course, using all of the other tools that we are now learning about, I think helps, but I'll, I'll stop there, Philip. Powerful, and I was listening to you carefully and um, I was thinking of some of the things that you were saying because it was all coming full circle to me because what I've learned uh, to my understanding is that First and, first and foremost, it feels like collective trauma is basically crushing us, you know, as human beings. Um, and what we need is the power to grip within ourselves in order to alleviate us of it. Because we all, you know, believe that therapy and, you know, wellness, mindfulness, um, different types of cognitive things will help us. But if we, none of us seem to be able to shake it. Uh, completely because our world is basically crashing down upon us in so many different ways and on so many different levels. And so I was just thinking that uh, in, where there, in every difficulty there is relief. This is what uh, we are promised um, 
in a lot of religious uh, belief systems is that where there's difficulty, there's relief. Um, and sometimes the relief is within the difficulty itself. So I was listening to you because a lot of guys that's incarcerated, they are just here doing time uh, for the most part. They don't take up religious service. They don't meditate. They don't find yoga. They don't find, you know, anything to help them cope. Um, so they turn back to what's um, comfortable for them. You know, using drugs and things of that nature, drinking, um, jailhouse, uh, Bruno and all that stuff. And what it does is it sets them up for failure because you can't get high in here or drink it here and then return to society and not think that you're going to just get it because it's more, it's more readily available. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about how we heal. I'm thinking about, you know, how do we tap into our maker, our creator, and to, uh, to be able to get healed uh, from some of this uh, collective trauma. Well, you know, it's interesting because I just see such a parallel. And I listen, I don't want to reduce the specific kinds of trauma that you and other incarcerated people experience. I don't want to make it seem like, well, we're all in the same boat. No, I, I don't want to do that. But what when I just heard you describing those behaviors that people are using to medicate, to cope, to survive, we're doing that on the outside too. That's the thing. And, and, and I, I think this is just to your larger point of, trauma sort of weighing all of us down. And, and then you said something, I should have tried to write it down. If I don't write things down lately, I will forget them. But you said something about the answer is in the, it's in the thing, like whatever, whatever, the, whatever the trauma is. Where, where, there is, where there is a difficulty, uh, there is relief also within the difficulty. Yes, yes. But, but that's what I think every every spiritual teacher has has given us that paradigm, like the way, the truth, the light is going through it. And it sounds to me like maybe part of your healing practice was trying to go through it, not trying to numb yourself, not trying to um, medicate or, or any of the other you know, innumerable coping mechanisms that human beings find, but to actually go through the pain, to go through the suffering, to go through the trauma. And in that, there is a kind of, there's a kind of energy, there's a kind of openness, something can crack open that allows you to see through to the other side somehow, even if your physical circumstances do not change. Because many of us are locked into circumstances that we feel like we cannot change. So incarceration, while it is a very real, tangible weight and thing, it is also this kind of metaphor for feeling locked in, confined, restricted from life. And that, again, is something that people experience on the outside as well, um, if that makes sense. It does. Um, you said something. You said something that's powerful. It's a term that a lot of people around here say. You gotta go through it to get to it. And so, you basically said that in so many words. I think there's no way to jump over it and around it and all that because we're faced with so many horrible things. Um, I read because I'm a reader. You know, I've read so many books. I got hundreds of books now. I read someone somewhere that it said that the reason that human beings have a memory is because if we didn't remember some of the most horrifying things that could take place to us, then we would constantly be um, confronted uh, with all kinds of uh, horrendous things. So our, our thoughts and our memory helps us to navigate away from certain pains and hurts. Um, and that shields us in a way. Otherwise, we would just lose our minds because we would constantly over and over again um, be met with the same uh, uh, type of pains and injuries, uh, psychologically, emotionally, physically. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Wow. Um, well, with that being said, you know, I know we got a little heavy. <laughs> you know, we're almost at the end. I noticed that you, you've done... Um, several documentaries and co-edited a close-up series in Black Camera Journal on the New York scene 
uh, of black independent filmmakers that contributed to the Lemonade Reader, uh, a dynamic anthology on the impact of Beyonce. Um, uh, if I'm reading that correctly, you published an essay on hip hop and music video culture as part of an in focus series in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Did I have that right? Yes. Okay. If I have that right, then I'll ask this question um, to get ready to conclude um, our deep and uh, powerful discussion. Um, just reading this impressive body of work um, and bring me to this question. How do we bring the hip hop culture, music culture to the table with social justice advocates um, in a discussion for criminal justice reorganization? I've been trying to get away from saying criminal justice reform. A lot of abolitionists don't like that word. There's no such thing as reform in their opinion. And I told you I'm kind of leaning that way lately. I've been struggling with it. But um, not to take you off course, but that's something that we noticed that a lot of these um, celebrities a lot of these sports athletes, a lot of these um, powerful people are talking about issues that impact people like me, but yet they don't come talk to me. They only deal with like high profile cases. They want to deal with people that's, you know, talk about in the media, the news all the time. You know, we're here. Come sit down. Come get at the table with us. We know the solution. Y'all got the resources and the power and the money, but I don't want to answer the question for you. So go ahead, sister, and tell me. Oh, your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, well, you know, I think you know people. People are generally well-meaning. They want to help. They 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 kind of find causes, and you know, sometimes they give their time. Sometimes they give their you know their resources. But I I think it my reading of history, however however limited that might be, suggests that it has rarely been those people who really initiate long-term change. It has been children, it has been young people, um, it has been people whose names we don't always even know, whose names were not often recorded in the history book. So I, I understand it makes sense that somebody with a platform it, you know, and, and a profile and who are influencers and all of that stuff, um, but I, Philip, I, I really think sometimes it's it's these seemingly smaller encounters with people who don't necessarily have a platform that often make a, a more longstanding difference. Um, I won't discount what anyone can do. Anyone can can make an impact, and 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 people of high profile have. But I guess one of the things that um, you had in the notes around this question was just what culture can do, what filmmaking can do, um, and, and and what what music, what what those kinds of things can do. And I also think that those things make a tremendous impact. And I've I've seen the impact that hip hop culture over my lifetime has made, and how it has, even in its rawness, in its sometimes illegibility, like we don't always understand what that culture means and what it is doing. But I think fundamentally what it has shown the world is that young people, poor people, people of color, black people have inside of us a, a, a voice of resilience and protest and resilience that matters. And that has translated, I mean, hip hop culture continues to, to shape shift and to evolve, sometimes in ways that I certainly don't necessarily understand or co-sign on. But the point is that it is it it represents a, a voice of, of 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 resistance fundamentally. That was its origin, that it was giving a voice to things that people could not see, could not understand, and did not care to. Um, and I think that impulse is also the impulse of Black life and Black culture, that we have always been the undercurrent that pushes, that challenges, um, and that embodies the, the hope of, of people. So those, those things, I think, are still real, and that culture and, and, and can continue to do that, and that filmmaking can continue to do that as well. Thank you. And, and um, that's a nice, I love that, uh, what you said, because that brings me to this, is that um, you said on a panel um, not too long ago, I remember, um, I think it was talking about uh, Black Lives Matter 
Oh, oh man, I, I don't know how it, it escapes me. It was a two-part uh, focus. Um, but before you answer or speak about that, I wanted to say that I come up in the 90s. I grew up in the 90s, even though I came to prison in 1990. I was 19. Um, I still, to this day, I, I'm, I've been locked up 31 years, so they can do the math on my age. I still, to this day, listen to the most rawest and hardcore hip-hop and rap music. Um, and people be like, why aren't you listening to the whispers and all and old J all that stuff? And I'll be like, yeah, well, you know, I don't music is music to me. It can be Jimmy. I mean, it's good. I'm going to listen to it. I say, but the reason I listen to that music is because it's speaking to something that I have seen, lived, and overcame. Even though I'm still incarcerated and I feel the pain of these young people that's rapping about the things that back in my time, we were unable to have an outlet of expression for. And so I still listen to it because it takes me back to that place. Um, and I imagine what they must be going through because I can relate to them. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to add that because... Uh, now, it doesn't matter how old you are. I guarantee you, if you listen to uh, the little baby song, The Bigger Picture, you're going to feel it. I don't care how old you are. You know, I mean, the message of it, you know, um, after George Floyd. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, that, that takes me here because I don't want to hold you. I know it's late over there where you're at. I just want to, you know, it's kind of give it, get it a wrap. You know, it's a powerful discussion. Um, I've been focused on this in my work as well. Um, you know, I have a nonprofit, and I was talking about it a little bit earlier. Um, what we want to do is show people that you can work from anywhere you are. What we want to do is show people that we can make changes little by little until the impact is felt um, on a larger scale. Um, so I do the podcast to bring awareness. You know, I do the, I, I do the nonprofit work um, to try to put some uh, resources sources in place um, so that we can make some policy changes in this system. Um, and that's just what I'm going to do even when I step up out of here. But uh, it's always so good to talk to someone, you know, so intelligent, so on point when it comes to um, the, 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 uh, the issues that are plaguing our societies. And so I'm trying to see how we can merge the two worlds, um, the hip-hop culture, the celebrity culture, uh, with those of us who come up at, um, you know, from the mud, you know, so to speak. How do we, how do you think uh, we can bring together those with huge platforms and match them with like college students, um, college professors, policy makers, and um, people like that who can make a difference in our communities? Um, I guess what I would say, you know, I can't speak for anyone else, but from the spheres that I operate in, which are sort of, you know, cultural spheres, higher education, and that kind of thing. I think there are things that are uh, that have come online in the last few years that are helpful. Um, I, I don't know if I told you this, Philip, but in February of 2020, right before, kind of right as COVID was starting to hit, I finished a training to start teaching in prisons where I lived in Georgia at the time. Um, and so one of the things that I wanted to do, in addition to actually being an instructor and, and teaching, was- You have 16 seconds remaining was to have ways of having college students, and there are other programs, you know, Inside Out and others, um, to, to have ways to at least bring college students and academia with um, incarcerated folks, um, learning from each other, doing projects together, doing digital storytelling projects, which is another thing that we can talk about another time. But I think there are ways of bringing these communities together, and there are already some models out there. Well, let me take a break right there and come back and we're going to close it out. Um, this this discussion is so powerful. We didn't exceed it on one hour, which is our normal show length. But I definitely want to close it out properly. So I'm going to come back. And me and um, Dr. Prettyman, my friend Michelle, we're going to uh, put some finishing touches on it. Elderly Heights Correction Center. This call will be recorded and monitored. Well, I'm back. The wall behind and beyond. Everybody, you know, tune in. It's great. Um, I got my friend Michelle, Dr. Pritikin on, and I wanted to, you know, bring it to a wrap. But before I do, I definitely, you know, want to conclude in the right way, you know, bringing a, putting, wrapping a ribbon around this whole discussion. And so, 
Uh, first, were you done with that comment, or did you want to add something else to that before we move on? No, I just the just I don't know if you heard the last little bit that I was saying, but just that there are some models for how to bring some of these groups together. Um, and I, I just look forward to playing more of a role. As I said, right before COVID, I was like about to launch into some really exciting work um, with incarcerated people. And it just got, you know, it got truncated. Um, and so I'm hoping to resume personally. But I think there are some ways that we can bring some of these populations together so that they can learn from one another and help one another. All right. Well, then here it is right here because you, you, you said it and I got it for you. Along the same line, when I hear Black Lives Matters, I want to make sure it's inclusive of those incarcerated. Uh, the Black incarcerated lives matter too uh, because a lot of us have been forgotten for the most part uh, aside from our families and loved ones. Uh, we really aren't thought of or spoken of a lot. We are human. And uh, we're definitely a vulnerable population who needs um, the outside world to keep their calves on it. Um, so my question is, in terms of Black Lives Matters, how can it be more inclusive to include Black incarcerated Lives Matters so that people put just as much emphasis on those behind these walls um, as well as those who are out there in, in society? Well, I will say that from its inception, the people who imagined and sort of constructed um, the ideas behind Black Lives Matter, I think they were very clear that all Black lives matter. I think they were crystal clear. And that meant queer folk, and it meant folk with disabilities. It meant trans people. It meant incarcerated people. So I think somewhere, Philip, maybe we did get, we did lose sight of the fact that all Black lives matter. Absolutely. And I think we have to say it over and over again, and we have to remind each other uh, of our own humanity, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter where we find ourselves. So I agree 100%. And I, I just think doing what you're doing right now, um, making us stop and, and really contemplate the full spectrum of Black life and making sure that we are all participating in ensuring that every life is valued and cherished and cared for. I think that's I think that's what we have to be reminded of often, and 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 that's vital work. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. And you know, off the off the record, when it comes to it, you know, me and you are going to conversate. We're going to continue to build, and we're going to come up with something. Um, because I know the work that you were about to start doing before the outbreaks of the COVID started. Um, but maybe we could do something uh, where it's though it's remote and we have a bunch of guys who are incarcerated um, do a Zoom or come on there and um, have you there and, you know, talk to us and talk about these these, uh, these powerful uh, things that you shared tonight. Um, so um, I'm a big on that. And then maybe we can come up with a project uh, that we could do uh, and we could come to the table through remote, uh, some type of remote thing until we're in a position where you can come back in. Um, you know what I'm saying? I would love it, Philip. Please, please, seriously, let's do that. Let's do that. We gotcha. can read, we can scream. Gotcha. We, I, I got ideas. I got ideas. <laughs> oh, wow. that's what I'm talking about. Then we go, we go and have some meetings and then we're going to do it because I got a lot of good, great guys in here um, that wants to talk about these issues. But you know, I don't want to hold you too late. So I want to say going out what is that what um how can people get a hold of you, email, social media, anything you want to give them so they can follow you, so they can promote you, and they can um they after they hear this podcast, they're gonna wanna know exactly who you are and they're gonna wanna learn more about you. So I'm gonna give you this opportunity now uh to tell us about that. Oh wow. So I'm I'm the most elusive public intellectual. I'm not super active on social media, but I think they can find me at Michelle Beverly on Twitter. Um, that's probably the best way. <laughs> okay, okay, sister. Thank you so much for coming on here. You know, I can't wait for this episode to drop so all the listeners can hear what I heard. You know, you dope. You know, you rock. You know, keep doing what you're doing. 